Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. For this episode, I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host and good friend, Jake Gunderson, as well as returning panellist and fellow Rayswarian, Sam Davies. Sam, you know the score by now. Your 20 minutes have begun. Please introduce your topic. Apple introduced tvOS to us, uh, I don't know, some number of months ago when they brought out the fourth generation of the Apple TV. It's all great. It's very much, tvOS is very similar to iOS. In fact, it's a fork of it. It's got a few extra bits, but mostly they've taken out a few things. And if you want to, you can go ahead and build your apps in exactly the same way as you would for iOS. So you use some Swift or you use some Objective-C if if you have to. And then you can deploy those apps using the App Store in exactly the same way that you normally do. However, at the same time, they also came out with this other slightly curious thing where they said, well, as well as building traditional apps, you can also build apps in a client-server model using something called TVML. This is a bit weird, right? TVML is XML, and you can build your layouts using this XML and provide your application logic using JavaScript. And you use a client-server model, and from that you can build up quite fully functional Apple TV apps. Now, this sounds a bit strange, right? Why would you have two different ways of building apps for the same platform? And a lot of it comes down to the the apps that you can build and the distribution model. So, TVML is kind of like HTML, but for Apple TV. So, in HTML world, you write something which looks mildly like XML. At one stage, was XML, but then we grew up and stopped using XML. And with that HTML you generate the layout of the content that you want to show on the screen. And then in order to get some interaction with that, you can use JavaScript. So when you click on things, then stuff happens, or it can navigate to other pages and the such like. You can think of TVML as being kind of the same thing, but for Apple TV, only incredibly specific for Apple TV. So rather than being able to draw anything that you want to, which you kind of do with HTML. Instead, they give you a set of layouts that you can use to build up the kind of designs and things that you want to for your Apple TV app. Now, the layouts that you get given, there's about, I don't know, maybe about 15 of them. They're all very specific to one purpose, and that is for doing video streaming or media playback in some some form. And that's the, the pretty much the limitation of TVML, right? You can do anything as long as it is some kind of media playback. But it is incredibly good at media playback. It abstracts all of the complexity of doing quite intricate layouts away from you fighting with auto layout or building up these things in storyboards to building it in a nice declarative way using XML, which is all very good. However, the probably the biggest advantage of using TVML over a traditional native style app is that you still put your app in the App Store, so you still have to have this kind of traditional component. But that component is probably only needs to be about 20 lines long, 20 lines of Swift or something, which you just use to bootstrap your TVML app. That goes into the App Store like usual, and the rest of your app 
is hosted somewhere on a server, right? So now you've got, this is really like the web. You have this uh, application server somewhere that streams out TVML and JavaScript and stuff to say how the app should run. And inside your app, the native part of it, all it says is this is the URL that you need to go to, to in order to start this app. That gives you great opportunities because no longer do you have to resubmit to the App Store to be able to see changes in your app. And that is really quite cool. So there's some really cool stuff there in TVML. So is this a bit similar to, or would you put it in the same league as like PhoneGap? Or is it, it's, I think it's now called Apache Cordova. You know, where it, it looks and feels a little bit, you can tell there's something there, but it but it's, you know, written in HTML and, and JavaScript and it communicates via, you know, extensions on JavaScript. I'm assuming TVML works on some level with, JavaScript core and JS context and things like that? To an extent, yeah. The I suppose the difference is what happens inside, uh, inside the TVML is that there is an engine which reads the TVML and then generates exactly the native components. So even though you're writing it in XML and using JavaScript, then all of the stuff is all turned into native code, uh, native kind of components and things. So when you create a particular layout, then that layout will be made up of a collection view, a table view, some image views, and all that kind of stuff. So everything will be will be turned into native code at the time that it actually runs. There's never any... So some of the frameworks that you were talking about are written so that they generate HTML that looks like a native app. This is this is not like that at all. This this generates uh, you write the XML, but that act is actually turned into native components themselves. They're not. There's no there's no HTML. There's no web view on um, uh, on 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 TVOS. But you're right. Certainly, that you can interact with with TVML through JavaScript core. So when you first start up a TVML app, it starts up a JavaScript core context, and then it uses that to run all of the application logic. And then that has some hooks out into the native um, into the native system. So things like inside your JavaScript app, you can get hold of a navigation controller and you can push things and pop things from it. That is just mirroring directly the, the, um, the nav controller that is inside you know a new a ui navigation controller inside the native app is there a performance hit on, on this that it's having to cr- create all this stuff on the fly create an entire user interface on the fly by a first having to do some parsing of you know whatever template it is that you're streaming from from your server but then also i know a lot of uh, ios the interface is like inflated uh, at runtime, but even when you uh, package up your app uh, or you compile your app, there is some intermediate step that happens because, like, if you download an app from the store and you pop the bundle open, you have a look. You can't actually view those nibs because those nibs are, and Storyboard are in a compiled state, so they're in in some intermediate state between you know interface builder and what actually eventually appears on your screen. And I assume that's to do with with some performance. Uh, process so that it's more performant than reading it straight from a uncompiled storyboard or nib. I'm just wondering because all this stuff is streamed, then processed, then they create this interface. If if the, if there was a performance problem or a performance hit, is it noticeable? Is it something that doesn't need to be worried about? I don't think that there is too much of a performance problem. I, the biggest, the, the slowest aspect of this whole 
pipeline is going to be the network connection. That's whenever you do anything, it's always the network connection that is the bottleneck. So, one, but once you've got hold of that, the TVML that you need, and running the JavaScript and stuff, I don't think there's. Yes, it will be slower, but I don't think it will be a huge amount slower. I mean, in terms of what it is that you're doing, it's no more complicated than rendering a website. And you know, an Apple TV is quite powerful, really. So it, it, it's got a, it's got a, a limited subset of. Well, not, it's not really a subset, but TVML is much smaller than HTML, so there's less that it can possibly have to draw. So I don't think it's... I certainly don't think it's a particularly big performance uh, hit. I know that if you've got one of these uh, fourth-generation Apple TVs, I know that the Movies app and I think the App Store as well are, are generated using TVML. So it's not as if they've created TVML and then don't use it themselves. They It is being used by Apple to do some quite... Well, I mean, they're probably the main apps that you use on an Apple TV, right? I heard on another uh, podcast, I think it was Manton, Manton Reese was looking at TVML, and he his opinion was if you're already a native developer, that it would be easier for you to just use native controls and build up your app um, versus learning TVML. What's your opinion on that? To an extent, yeah, I think that 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 is definitely true. That if you're a native developer and you have no experience of working with a client-server model, uh, with rend- with if with kind of a, you use a lot of the same skills that you use if you're doing any web development. Really, you're building JavaScript apps and probably JavaScript apps on like a client app and that kind of stuff. You have no experience of that kind of thing then maybe native apps are the best way to go, or the kind of the traditional apps. The thing that I've noticed in my time working with it, though, because I've, I've built like prototypes using traditional native approaches, and then I've written quite a few chapters using the uh, TVML approach, you can get much better layouts and designs put together really quickly using TVML than you can with native approaches. So native approaches, if I want to say... I assume you've seen like the home page that you see on a uh, on an Apple TV, right? You've got those things. You've got the big kind of things across the top, and then you've got some like shelves with bits and pieces in, and you can kind of scroll across them left and right, and you can scroll up and down the whole thing. Now, if you're building that using TV, TVML, it's really easy. There's a template that does that. You can have these. Each of those shelves are actually called shelves, so you can have a shelf and you put the content in it declaratively. It's all nice and simple. If you want to go and build that natively, then you're building multiple collection views inside, probably inside a collection view or a scroll view. You've got to go and build the data sources for each of those. You know, it's it's not difficult stuff, but it's it's a lot more, there's a lot more time and effort that goes into recreating that same layout than you would if you were doing TVML. So you mentioned chapters there. Um, I think we should probably point out that, Sam, you've been working on a book on the TVOS Apprentice book. That is currently um, available for early access and is due to be published soon. Uh, so anybody interested in learning more about either TVOS or TVML can can get access to that book now. And I think, Sam, I think most, if not all, of your chapters are included in that early access. Is that correct? They Well, no, not quite all of them. The uh, So the, the book is, is probably about, it's a really big book, actually. It's about 27 chapters of stuff, and it's split between native traditional apps and it's and TVML apps and then some kind of stuff in the middle that's shared between the two. The 
at the moment the early access that we've done two early accesses and probably the first half of my chapters are in there. So I've I wrote the chapters to do with TVML, of which there are nine, and I think the first five are in the early access. But the the end the release date is in a week, couple of weeks time or something anyway. So you can you can go and grab it for early access now, and by the time that you've got through the first chapters, then end product will will have been released but in there we go from we start right at the beginning building your very first tvml app and then we take we go through how you do layouts the templates and that kind of thing so you can get some idea of the the apps that you can build the layouts that you can build how you can go about customizing those using styling so uh, like i mentioned it's quite similar to html tvml also has a css like styling system so you can uh, you style your different tags and things and then they appear differently and they've got some custom elements and attributes on those elements. So you kind of learn about all of those different bits and pieces. And all of this, I one of the things that I find or found quite confusing when TVML first came out is this idea, it's client-server, that means that you have to have all of your stuff on a server and then the app itself doesn't do very much and it just it just pulls this stuff from a server. But that's not the way that TVML is written. I mean, that's probably the way that you'd want to use it but if you don't know anything about building a server you don't actually need to do any of that at all and the servers that we build in the book we start off without building any servers all the tvml is done inside the app bundle all of the javascript is inside the app bundle and all of the application logic and that kind of stuff all happens inside the app bundle as well and then later on as we move through the book then we take that out so that the app, the app becomes very very small and then everything is pushed up onto the server but if you one of the things that struck me when i first started looking at this was the sample projects you get from apple all have this tendency to have uh, in order to generate the content to generate the tvml dynamically they have like javascript functions that are basically just a templated string and so you have you call this javascript function and it it returns you this string of tvml and i found that really quite confusing it didn't seem to be a very sensible way to to build stuff and it's not not the way that you tend to build web apps these days either you'd have an api which had your data and then your your web app would request that data and then it would populate a template using some kind of templating system so in the in the book then we do exactly the same but with tvml so we build a server that serves the data using an api we have the tvml templates which uh, we use like a mustache js thing to be able to populate those with the data coming in from the api and it ends up with being a lot more scalable than the sample projects you get from apple and i think it makes a lot more sense at that stage because otherwise if you follow follow their lead then you end up with something that i don't think you'd ever want to use you'd end up with this weird javascript that just has loads of strings in it which doesn't make any sense to anybody now one thing i did want to pick your brains out you said there that you've written nine chapters um most, if not all of them, on TVML. And I know that you started not long after the first version of the SDK came out. And given that I work with you day to day, I also um, am aware of some of the frustrations that you found yourself uh, fighting against whilst writing those chapters. You've just mentioned one there, that the sample apps and the approach you've taken, obviously, are very different. But I was wondering if you could share some of the other common issues that you found with TVML that might not have been an issue where had you gone down the native route or if you were building an app using native? The documentation is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it, it, 
to be fair, then you can you can get quite a lot with the documentation, but it's not it's not very good at saying this element that you build and this template behaves like this because underneath everything it's actually a collection view. So you end up with things where stuff doesn't lay out like it looks like it should. And then you go and you can go and use the view debugger like you normally would inside a, a traditional app. And you can see all of the auto layout constraints. And you're trying to work out how does this TVML turn into those auto layout constraints so that then I can work out what it is that I actually want to do. So the documentation is not brilliant. I think it, well, it may well improve. It's kind of getting there. Something else that I found which is quite niche, I suppose, is that the core Java, sorry, JavaScript core engine on tvOS is not the same as the JavaScript core engine in iOS 9. So I was prototyping some things, um, and it was all working nicely, and then I moved it over to use the JavaScript core engine on tvOS, and it was different, which was quite frustrating. So you'd imagine that they'd fork the JavaScript core at the same time for iOS 9 and tvOS 9, but no, they're different times. And that took some work to establish that. It just meant that there were bits of the latest versions of JavaScript, ECMAScript 2015, I guess, that aren't implemented inside tvOS. Other than that, I think it's not too bad. It's just getting your head around what actually am I allowed to do. And the documentation is not brilliant at that. Something else that you can do is, I've got this really great native view. I really love it. I want to use that in my tvML app. You can do that. There's a, a library called... TVML kit that allows you to create your own custom tags inside TVML and then populate them yourself in the native side with your native view. And that's really, really cool. Really badly documented. So work getting that to work is, is quite challenging. But other than that, I think it's there are quite a lot of frustrations, mainly down to the fact that it's not clear what's going on underneath the underneath the covers. But once you've spent a while with it, you start to get your head around that. And hopefully that comes across in the book. From try okay Tom, i'm gonna to have to cut you there we've just gone over time uh, thanks for sharing all that about tvml i'll make sure we get a link to the book in the show notes now before we move on to your topic jake uh, i just wanted to take this opportunity to thank buddy bill for sponsoring this episode of the raywenlick.com podcast about a year ago there was a small team building an ios app they faced the same struggles many of you are facing today they wanted to focus their time on building beautiful, engaging, compelling mobile experiences. They wanted to move quickly, experiment with different directions, get their builds into the hands of their eager beta testers, and get feedback and involve them in the development process. But the reality was a lot more frustrating. Code would work on one dev's machine, but not on another's. Archives would miss some of the commits. New testers would try to get a build, but their UDID would need managing. Time was wasted. Speed suffered. I suspect this sounds familiar. They knew exactly how they wanted to work. Git push a code change. A build magically happens. Testers' phones would automatically be updated with that latest build. And testers had a way to quickly give feedback. Trying to enable this workflow became even more frustrating, though. The CI platforms that existed were built for web apps, not mobile. The build server had no idea how to deploy mobile apps. It quickly became a hodgepodge of tools and scripts. It took days to set up and even longer to maintain. That team decided to put the app they were building on hold and craft a better way for all iOS developers to work. BuddyBuild is now used by thousands of iOS developers every day to build their apps, enabling them to move faster with less friction. Git commits are built in the cloud, Xcode tests are run, provisioning profiles are automatically managed, builds are automatically sent to testers, and their feedback and crash reports are received. 
When the final builds are ready, they are uploaded directly to iTunes Connect. Most apps take under five minutes to get set up, and you can get the development workflow you've always wanted at www.buddybuild.com. And now, Jake, I'm going to pass the mic over to you. Your 20 minutes, or the next 20 minutes, are all yours. Okay, so as you have probably heard, last week, uh, Parse made an announcement that they are shutting down. And this has kind of sent a kind of a shock through the iOS development community. I think everybody who has worked on iOS has heard of Parse, and probably most of us have used it in some capacity or another. Made the announcement they were shutting down. They laid out this kind of the future. They're going to leave it running for a whole year. So the the final... The, the the last day it will, will work is on January 28th of 2017. And they've also basically open sourced some or most of of what Parse is in the form of Parse servers. So they've, they're giving you, they're giving us the ability to run uh, a Parse-like service on our own servers. And there's a migration guide on their site that explains exactly how you can get all your data that's in Parse now out and you know, move it over to another service. And so, a lot of developers have kind of ta- are talking about, you know, what do we do next? What what should we do? And I think just to kind of lay out some of our options, kind of the major options are: one is to use Parse Server to just continue to use Parse, but to host your own server in the form of Parse Server. There are some disadvantages to that, at least at, at the present time. And we'll talk more about this, but at the present time. It, it's not fully featured, so a, a couple things that are not included in Parse Server are push notifications, uh, background jobs that run on the server, um, and a few other things. So it, some of that may be addressed in the future. So that's one option. A second option is to go to a completely new service that's similar to Parse. There are lots of examples. Firebase is one of the prominent ones. And another option, obviously, this is this has always been an option, is to just build your own backend. So those are kind of your your options. We, we wanted to talk a little bit together just about you know what this means to the community, what, what how developers maybe should change their strategies moving forward with these backend services. What do you guys think? I was pretty surprised. I didn't see this one coming to be honest. Um, Pass has been around for a long time and seemed to be uh, sustainable before it was acquired by Facebook. So then you think once Facebook have acquired it and they've got the money and power that Facebook have behind them, that they, you know, it would be around for a long time yet. Like it being sunsetted was was probably something that never crossed people's mind as soon as Facebook stepped in. So this was a bit of a shock, to be honest. I'm always a little bit skeptical of free, um, especially when it's something then that I'm going to build a product around. So whilst... I didn't see this coming. It's like, I think, and this is where you've got to be careful choosing a replacement, is that if somebody is offering you something for free, especially on the scale of something like Pass, um, and anybody that's worked with uh, scaling sort of web backends and doing it um, on hosted platforms will understand some of the costs involved in this. So, you know, at the end of every month, Pass will have had a huge bill probably from AWS because most of these things are built on Amazon's AWS platform you know somebody's got to be paying for that and if every if you're getting everything for free it's like well where's you know how's that a sustainable business and then if you're gonna go and build your product or your service on top of one of these things you've always got to be mindful of that uh, and that is again like I say something that I would be 
very conscious about when choosing an alternative. Do you think that applies to iCloud? Not iCloud, what's it called? CloudKit as well? Because that's free at pretty big scale. Or do you think that because that's Apple and their business model is very much based on hardware, then, then that's not a concern for that? I mean, there are other concerns with CloudKit, right? But not that. I wouldn't... like. I think that is a a, a different concept altogether. I, I think CloudKit... Well, first off, it's built. It's it's by the it's built by or it's supplied by the platform vendor. So you know, Facebook, as much as it is a platform, on you know, it doesn't offer you know a mobile OS, and therefore it's not trying to get you locked in. It wants you to use Facebook as much as possible, obviously. But Facebook and Pass are two separate uh, two separate entities. Whereas Apple are the platform vendor, and we all build apps for their platform. And they integrate iCloud into everything, and a lot of the stuff that's now available via iCloud is actually built under the um, surfaces built on CloudKit. And if they can get their developers already building for their platform to use their um, cloud storage backend provider service, then not only does it enrich the apps that people are already using because it allows you to sync data between Apple's apps and your apps and that kind of stuff, but it also ties those users into Apple's platform and makes it harder for them to move away. So they have a slightly different angle, I would say, on why CloudKit is free um, as opposed to something like Pass, which is a third-party entity. I think you touched on an interesting point there that Facebook is a platform and Pass was a kind of separate platform and what Facebook wanted was people to log in. Because one of the things that I don't really quite understand, like you, I was quite surprised that they decided to shut it down because given that when they acquired it, then as soon as it's acquired, you assume it's going to shut down and you get all these reassurances. No, no, we're not going to shut it down. We're going to keep going. And then they appeared to do that. Like each, you, they, they were quite a prominent part of F8 or whatever it's called, their developer conference. And I went to a few kind of mobile expos, the kind of things where there's loads of marketing type people there. And they had big, pass had big kind of stalls and things there. It seems like, you know, and fairly recently, there was a huge amount of work on open sourcing stuff, which maybe is explainable by the fact it's being closed down. But they were still working on the tvOS and the Apple Watch SDKs and stuff very, very recently. It doesn't feel like that this was coming to end of life or anything in any any sense like that. But I read something interesting where that was trying to work out, well, why did Facebook bypass in the first place and why are they no longer interested in it? And it seemed to suggest that they bought it because then... Loads and loads of developers will use it. It'll get out there. Load. It'll be in lots and lots of apps. And one of the things that you get out of this is that you offer really, really easy login to Facebook. Uh, login to these different apps using your Facebook credentials. So as long as you can kind of spread this idea that, well, I should be able to log into everything using my Facebook account, then to an extent that's Facebook's job done here. This is what they wanted Pass for. Now, I don't know how valid this argument is, but it was a, it's interesting. The only thing that I've really read that kind of explains it, other than the fact that it was running at a loss and nobody was going to pay for it. But that seems to me that that was always the case, so I didn't really understand it. Well, I think there's a couple of things there that you touched on, Sam. Jake and I were actually talking about this off-air before we started recording, and I kind of have a couple of theories about why Facebook might have been interested in Pass. Obviously, this is just me. It's not. There's no fact or anything behind it, but it just seems to me what, what would be like the most common sense reasons the first one is um, 
if you have a an app on the scale that Facebook's app is used, then you get a lot of analytics and a lot of information about how people are using that, that app. But all that is within the context of just the Facebook app. And if you're continually looking to improve the user experience of your app, you kind of need to look beyond what you're doing with your own app and see how uh, the wider picture, what other types of apps are people ha- uh, people using, how are they interacting with that type of app. And I think for Facebook, that's why Pass might have been an attractive proposition because Pass was being used by all these independent uh, app developers and companies that were building their apps around it. Um, not long after Pass was acquired, they released their analytics uh, feature set. If you've got, if you own this platform that is outside of the context of your, of your app and you've got all these apps that hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people use it, you get to see a much wider and a much bigger picture of how people are using mobile, how people are interacting with apps. And then you can learn from that and you can apply back some of that to improve the experience of your own app. So that was the first theory that I had thought. The second one was that I think something like Pass could generate a fair amount of money but you need to get the right clients. And I think if you look at something like AWS, where you know there, there are jokes made now that half the internet is now built on AWS, and we kind of sometimes see that because if there's a problem with AWS, a lot of the, the websites we visit uh, no longer work. Facebook probably thought that if they could a- acquire some of these huge clients like AWS has, then they that could justify the cost and also subsidize people like you and me and the guys listening, um, to continue to use Pass for free. So I think there's probably a couple of couple of things there. What might have panned out is Facebook were unable to attract that size of client. And also maybe if it was the other way and they were looking at for user behavior and to sort of draw analytical um, information from the Pass uh, data, then maybe they've learned what they needed to learn. Maybe, you know, maybe Pass stopped the, the growth plateaued and therefore they felt they got enough out of it than they could and and now it's time to well I think they put it as realignment of priorities uh, and and then if it is running at a loss you probably do want to you probably do want to shut that down what do you guys think about in terms of developers now does this does this parse announcement make you feel like developers should build, be building their own backends more often so they're not relying on third parties or is is it does that not what you'd take from this I have mixed feelings about this. I think if a third, if you're going to rely on a third party, if that's an option, if, if you feel that's the only option for you, because obviously it's not, it's not just about building a back end. It's about then maintaining that back end and also being in a position where if you have like an overnight success or you have steady growth, you need to be able to scale that. And so it's not just throwing together like a PHP uh, script that uh, you know talks to a MySQL database and returns some some JSON. Like this thing, this has got to scale in um, parallel with your user base. So it's not it's not as easy. I think like it's. I, I put a thing out on Twitter after the announcement where it seemed like almost overnight everybody had become a back end developer because they were all going, <laughs> oh no, just build your own, build your own. And in theory, like, and and that might be a first thought, then, you know, that's fine. But actually, when you sit down and you look at the architecture that's involved, you know, you've got, like, load balances, you've got proxies, you've got multiple instances of, of your app running so that 
a load balancer works. You've got things that need to, to scale, at both when you demand increases and you demand decreases, so you're not overpaying or underpaying. Like, there's so much involved um, that like building a backend probably, unless you re- you've got a big team who know what they're doing, or you know, the your time, the, you you have are able to make that time investment um, probably should be lower down on your list. What I would say is, if you're going to go for a third party, pay them because they have a very obvious business model. And and I'm not talking about like like pass. People will have paid pass, but they had a very generous free tier. So very few apps, very few customers will have breached that tier. I think you should be you you should be paying for any usage. And that means anybody using that service is, is paying them money. They are generating income and therefore they have a, a very obvious business model and hopefully a business model that's sustainable. So that's that's what I would bear in mind if you're going to go down the third party route. I agree it's, with everything that Mick said though. I think that when you're choosing what you do, it's just a balance between risk versus, I guess, reward. I mean, that's what you traditionally say. The risk being what happens if this goes overnight, uh, disappears overnight. And to that extent, you can mitigate against that kind of thing. So if you've built your app that is uh, based on pass and you've built it in such a way that your data layer is just a, a collection of protocols and then when you need to replace that that data layer that or that, that um, persistence layer that you've been using pass for, if that then becomes um, uh, uh, replacing that with a different user a different um, system then all you've got to do is go into your app and change one little bit of it it's not spread out through the entirety of the app and you know that might sound obvious but i've done a bit of consultancy in the past where somebody was using pass and kind of in the middle of the view they'd be looking something up in in the pass database and it was it's kind of crazy that if they had to go and fix it that will touch every piece of code that they've got so there's a bit of risk mitigation that you can do in there and then the yeah so the risk is what happens if it disappears overnight how would i go about migrating it and you know where where is my data in that that sense and how much of this am i am i really using how much do i rely on it and then the reward is well how long would it take me to actually build this myself and if you look at something like pass then you'll probably discover that it will take a long time for you to build that now that might not be the case now because there is an open source pass server that you could use but i mean there are always open source kind of servers and things that you could use and then wrangle to do exactly what you wanted i think it's quite key that you need to work out what is it that is the core purpose of your app or your business and then make sure you spend the most time that you can on that and not spend your time building backends that somebody else has already done for you now i mean that obviously there's a risk associated with that so how long will it take that to do that migration but you know, analyze that up front, you know, make sure that when you're building your models, you're not using features that are so unique to that platform that you would really struggle to migrate them, trying to build it in such a way that it's all a little bit more abstract. And then I think that the migration will be, if it all it is is a migration, and you can do that migration, then that's a far smaller cost than building and maintaining your own architecture in the back end or could be it depends on your use case and i think that's the key thing to look at there's also different levels of third-party service as well so something like pass which gets right into the guts of your app and provides you this functionality you could do something that's a a next layer up like um 
I suppose to an extent AWS is this it's a collection of different services that they offer and they do give you an SDK to allow you to access it but all of those things you pay for the amount you use them from day one and they're a lot of them are more generic right you know you're not building against this this very specific SDK you can build against well it's just a restful database service or something the fact that that's running in aws on i don't know mongo or whatever it is that's kind of irrelevant because i can replace that with something else if you get your uh, get your api call sorted well certainly that's that's my kind of feeling anyway it's don't suddenly jump ship because this is you know oh no pass has gone therefore i need to not use any third party things just take your time and i mean particularly with pass you've got a year you don't need to jump on it now wait and see how the pass server develops then maybe it's possible to run an instance of that there will be people standing up this as a service i'm sure that maybe they offer a business model that you can sign on to you know if that's all they do we will host your version of pass server maybe that's a, a perfectly valid business model and you pay them from day one maybe that's a sensible approach but i think suddenly jumping and saying never again will i use a third-party service is not the right thing to do it's risk versus reward and the reward you get from a third-party service is the scalability the ease of use and uh, the fact that you don't have this maintenance cost is that i just want to just on that as well um there's a couple of tweets put out by um ken yaramosh who's from savvy apps this week that i've that i'll, I'll put in the show notes basically saying even though everybody has to be off pass within a year like don't make a rash decision because pass server as it stands is missing a lot of the features that the pass product as a whole provider things like push notifications but these are fixable problems and as Sam kind of alluded to then two or three months down the line somebody may have resolved all these issues and make it far easier to move off the platform past platform as it stands today into one of these hosted environments that hopefully you will pay for because then it's sustainable but almost um, with feature parity which would then make that transition far easier everything else that is being touted as a replacement um, doesn't have feature parity or the features are there but they don't have this umbrella over them that make it really easy to use so Jake mentioned Firebase well Firebase really is just the database side of Pass. It's real. It has real-time features, which Pass didn't, and, and they're great, and we've got a couple of tutorials on the site regarding that. But, you know, if you are looking for database plus analytics plus push, then Firebase isn't going to be the answer. Sam mentioned AWS. Well, AWS offer database, they offer cloud code, they offer push, but you have to provision these services yourself and, to some aspect, maintain them. AWS will manage to scale and all that kind of stuff for you, but there is still some sysadmin work. There is still uh, some work for you to do in order to pull these together to use all of them in a single product. So um, whilst there are options out there, some of them aren't like for like, some of them are, but it uh, need a lot more work on your part. Whereas if we, if if everybody just sort of lets the dust settle on the announcement and then sort of reevaluate where where you are in two or three months' time, then, as I say, you might find, or as Ken said, rather, you might find that somebody's solved all these problems in a sustainable uh, way, and therefore, you know, that might be the best option. There's somebody working on a tutorial about parse alternatives, and so we'll go into this discussion uh, more in depth on the site in the future. 
we probably will be looking at the the bigger players, people like Azure, AWS, Firebase, people that have been around, are established, are already supporting large groups of people, uh, user, uh, large user bases, and we'll put something together around those. As Jake said, you know, keep your eye on your site. If, I think we're going to put an article out first that looks at comparison of the available services, and then we're going to put out some tutorials about how to get your stuff off Pass, how probably to stand up a Pass server, as well as then maybe looking to migrate into into one of these alternatives. Now, guys, uh, that's us out of time. I wish we had more time because I feel like you know I could continue this conversation on for another, well, an, at least another twenty minutes, but probably a lot longer than that. Um, but thanks again, Jake. Thanks again, Sam. Thank you. Uh, if you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, then please do get in contact via podcast at raywindley.com. And don't forget to leave your reviews on iTunes because they do help and they help motivate Jake and I to continue doing this. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the raywindley.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.